is that we are going to spend a bit more time now looking at that same verse, thy kingdom come, because there are, there are multiple dimensions to this verse. The first, as we, we looked at in a previous session, is about thy kingdom coming in us as men, transforming our hearts, our desires, our emotions, etc. There's also an element to this verse, which is praying for his kingdom to come into the lives of those around us our family, our friends, and society as a whole. But we're not going to be looking at that. We're actually going to look at another element to this this verse, which is to hope. To hope for a time when his kingdom will come fully. And the reason for that is that hope is vital to how we live our lives. It is a vital fuel for our souls. And... Um, Hope defines our actions and our truest beliefs, but it it can also be misplaced and lead us into dangerous places. And worst of all, when we we lose hope altogether, it literally can be the end of us because our our hearts just can't survive without hope. There was a guy called Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor, and he obviously knew more than most about the importance of hope. And he said... The foundation of who you are is your hope. Or in other words, it defines you. What you put your hope in will define not just what you do, but who you become. And I think to live a life with no hope is to live a life with no purpose. It's as if we are wandering aimlessly with no direction until we die, you know, meandering haplessly to our inevitable destruction. And And I think to live a life with no hope, it's not just somewhat pointless. It actually becomes deeply disturbing because our hearts can't survive without hope. As Thoreau put it, it is to live a life of quiet desperation. But actually, I think it's more common than we might think for both Christians and non-Christians alike. I read a statistic recently that said 80% of Americans have no dreams at all. None. Frankel who I just mentioned, was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist as well as a Holocaust survivor. And and he wrote about his experiences in the concentration camps and in particular how, how men responded to the suffering around them and particularly the importance of hope in those situations. And And he wrote really powerfully about how some people would just lose hope almost, you know, quite often very suddenly and they would just give up. They would, they would just not bother getting dressed in the morning or eating at all, often suffering physical violence as a result. The reason being is once they'd lost hope, they literally had nothing to live for. And he, he told the story of one man in particular who, who had a dream. And he had a dream that the war was going to end on March the 30th. And he was so convinced that it was some form of, of premonition um, but unfortunately, as the time grew on, uh, the tri- that, that day drew closer, it became clear that the war was not going to end. And on March 29th, he started running a high temperature. On March 30th, he became unconscious. And then on March 31st, he died. It literally, the loss of hope literally killed him. It lowered his body's resistance to the illness around him. And he died. Now, I, I have some personal experience of the importance of hope when it comes to our own mortality. My, um, my father died of, of cancer some three years ago, 
and, and he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the March of 2013. And it quickly became apparent that it had spread to his other organs. And whilst the prognosis, the initial prognosis was pretty grim, there was, there was some hope, not much, but there was a little bit of hope that that treatment could help. Now, my father was a good man. Um, he was um, compassionate, he was wise, and, um, but unfortunately he had he'd put his hope in the more perishable things in this world. He'd worked hard all his life. to build a comfortable life for himself and for his family. And he was looking forward to doing some of the things that he enjoyed during his retirement. But, um, but unfortunately, he was only six months into his retirement when he died. Um, but he, he embarked on this very, very aggressive program of chemotherapy. And um, within just two months of that, that treatment, the doctors informed him that it, you know, the drugs weren't working. In fact, the treatment was making him worse, and they, they advised him to come off the treatment. And at that point, there was no avoiding the reality of the situation. He had terminal cancer, and it would kill him within three months. And for my father, that was the point at which all hope had gone. Everything that he'd been putting his hope in over the years had been taken away, and it crushed him. And, and although... I'd say he, he dealt with those last few months with, with dignity and with courage. It was clear that he felt lost. It was clear that he felt crushed from within. And for a son, that was the hardest thing to see. I mean, his physical deter his deterioration physically was, was horrendous, but it was nothing compared with seeing him lose hope because it, it almost was as if he was, he was dying from within. Um, now, I, I visited him regularly when he was in, in hospital. And there was one such evening where I'd visited him in hospital in Swindon and I was driving back down the M4. And I felt compelled to put on a CD. And I felt compelled to put on a CD that I hadn't listened to for many, many years. And that CD was by The Verve, um, showing, perhaps showing my age a bit here. And um, there was one track in particular that just left me with these just tears just streaming down my face and that was a track with the words <laughs> does anyone know the song I'm about to say the drugs don't work they just make you worse and then it goes on to say anyone but I know I'll see your face again and um, it just exposed so much pain and longing in my heart both both the pain for seeing my father lose hope, but also the hope that I was holding to that I would see his face again. Now, I've often reflected on that, my father's suffering and, and, um, and how he handled it, how he handled knowing that he had terminal cancer. And it raised a question in my mind, how would I react? If I knew I had three months to live, would I deal with those last few months with the courageous hope of those that have faith in Jesus? Or would it crush me? 
And to be brutally honest, I don't know. I really don't know. But what I do know is the more that I put my hope in him now, the more I'll be able to when it, when it really counts. <coughs> so after that little emotional interlude, we're now going to watch another clip from the Shawshank Redemption, which, if you know the film, you will know it is an incredible film, and it's really a film about hope. It's about hope, it's about freedom, and it's about salvation. And it has much of the story of the gospel in it, as you'll, as you'll come to see. And, and in this film, if you don't know the story, the main character, Andy, played by Tim Robbins, has been wrongly accused of murder. And he's been, he's been sentenced to life in prison. But Andy's different from all the other prisoners because Andy knows he is innocent. He knows he's not the prisoner and he's living with hope. Whereas all the other prisoners, well, they've resigned themselves to their fate. They know they're guilty. They've accepted life imprisonment and there is no hope. <clears throat> Brooks had um, been a prisoner for so long that it had defined who he was. He'd constructed this identity around being a prisoner, being the good prison librarian. And he wasn't living with any greater hope. So much so when, when freedom was offered to him, he couldn't accept it because the hope of freedom had been, had been lost. There's, um, there's a line in the film, I think we, we saw it in the trailer, where uh, they say, you either get busy living or you get busy dying. And if you've lost hope, then ultimately the conclusion you come to is there is no reason to carry on and you might as well, you might as well die. What you put your hope in determines how you live your life. For Brooks, he put his hope in being a prisoner, being a good prison librarian. And when that was taken away, he was left with nothing. And he couldn't survive without hope, so he took his own life. Or perhaps put a slightly different way, our, our behaviours are dependent on our future view of the world. Now, Brooks's future view of the world was all about what he could achieve in prison as a, as a good prison librarian. When it was taken away, well, that was it. He, he was left with nothing. Andy, on the other hand, as you'll come to see shortly, well, he, was be, he had put his hope in the knowledge that one day he would be set free. But I think the story of Brooks is actually true of all of us we all put our hope in the more perishable realities of this world. A comfortable retirement, a relaxing holiday, uh, a bigger house, uh, a relaxing beer in the evening. But as I'm sure you can all testify, when we actually get those things that we're putting our hope in, they, they always leave us wanting a little bit more. They never quite satisfy in the way that we want them to. And if we believe that the greatest thing that lies ahead of us is a comfortable retirement, if that is what we are putting our hope in, then we will be held captive to it. We will be slaves to our careers. And if we're putting our, our hope in the success and the happiness of our children, then, then we'll put unreasonable expectations on them and we'll probably crush them in the process. Because if we're putting our, our hope in the perishable things of this world, we will be captive to them. They will hold us prisoner and they will prevent us from enjoying the freedom that is available to us in Christ. And when those things are taken away, they'll have a devastating impact upon us, just as we saw with Brooks. 
what you put your hope in will either hold you prisoner or it will set you free. Jonathan Edwards said, this life ought to be spent by us only as a journey towards heaven. We should be fixing our eyes on what is unperishable and we'll find freedom not just in heaven, but in that, but now. So, what is it? What is it we should be fixing our eyes on? What should we be putting our hope in? If it's not retirement, then what is it? Well, Colossians 1.5 says, Faith and love spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. We should be putting our hope in what is stored up for us in heaven. Heaven is a time when his kingdom will come fully. So we're going to spend a little bit of time now just exploring what that's going to be like. What will it be like when his kingdom comes fully? And we're going to do that partly because I don't think we do it very often. At least I, I know I don't. I don't reflect very often on what that will be like. And when we try to, it's really quite hard because our imagination, our, our thoughts on what, on what heaven will be like is so conditioned by the realities of this world that we find it very hard to conceive of a world of perfection. So here goes. What will his kingdom come be like? Well, firstly, the first thing that that Jesus has secured for us and will be brought to completion on his return is freedom. Freedom from what, I hear you ask? Well, freedom from everything that holds you back. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the lies of the enemy. Freedom from anything that is not of God. Freedom from your false self. That journey that we spoke about in the previous session, well, that will be brought to a glorious conclusion. You will be your true selves at last. And in 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, but we do know that when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. That is an incredible promise to hold to. Just think of a time when you will be truly free from everything all of your fears and all of your pride, free to be your true self, free to be just like Jesus, as it says in that verse. You won't fear a thing, whether that be the opinions of others, whether that be whether you succeed or fail at a given task. You won't fear exposure. You won't fear difficult conversations with your wife because we will know who we really are. We will be our true selves, We won't have to hide behind a fig leaf of our false self. We won't need to pose because we won't need the validation of others, nor will they need ours. We will be free to enjoy each other's company. And others will see who we really are, and they will love us for it. Um, Our restoration is is like the forging of a sword, hence, hence the theme of this weekend. And there is a process that we must go through, the journey that we are on. And it will be tough, and there will be pain, and there will be suffering, but there's a reason behind it. Because just like the forging of a sword, the sword must be thrust into a fierce heat of a fire where the impurities are burnt off. And that is true of of our characters. We must be refined in the fires of life such the impurities of the false self are burnt off to reveal pure gold. And it is, our, is the suffering and our faith to endure 
is the process through which God will restore us to greatness. And that should really give us an immense source of hope to know that he is using our challenges, our trials, our pain and our suffering to restore us to the men that he created us to be. Malachi 3 verse 3 says that he will purge them as gold and silver and purged in the fire from their dross. What makes a sword great is the way it's made. The, uh, the, the sword must be bashed and hammered into shape by the bright hammer before it is thrust into the fierce heat of the fire before then being quenched by the water. And, and the, the fiercer, the hotter the fire, the tougher that sword will, will become. And so that is also true of our characters. You know, we are, that what makes a man great is the way he endures, the way his faith endures those trials and those challenges of life. The very first clip we saw on the trailer um, before, before I spoke um, was from The Lord of the Rings, and it was about the, the reforging of a very special sword. It was originally the sword which was used to cut the finger and the ring from the evil Lord Sauron, who then stamped the sword into pieces. But that sword was reforged. It was put back together again. And um, it, was, it was given a new name. And then it was put in the hands of the one true king, King Aragorn. It was restored to the greatness that it once yielded. And it is very much a parable for our lives. We are being restored, reforged into something dangerous and powerful and true. And a time will come when we are given a new name, all in the service of the one true king. And in the Lord of the Rings books, um, and, and there's a quote from Tolkien, and it's actually in the front of, of your little booklets, and I'll just read it to you now. And when I read it, think of this as you. This is the journey that you are, and this is what you are being restored to. It says this, Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. And Aragorn gave it a new name and called it Anduril, Flame of the West. Like that sword, we will shine brightly when we are made whole again, when we are restored to our true selves. And our hope should be in the promise that there is a glorious end in sight, that he is restoring us to something powerful and bright and true. Romans 8 says that all our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When we are fully restored, we will be glorious because we are created in his image and we will reflect his image fully once more. But it gets better, actually. It gets a lot better. Um, there's a verse, a section I want to read you from 1 Peter 1. And again, it's, it's quite a long section, but it's in the back of your, of your journals. And I just want to read it to you now. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. 
It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Now buried in there is something which I think is remarkable, which was when it was explained to me, I was somewhat blown away. In there it says, our trials will bring you much praise and glory and honour when the day Jesus Christ is revealed. What that is saying is that we will receive praise, glory and honour from him, from God. Um, I think it's staggering because we, we, we spend so much of our lives seeking the praise and validation, the honour of, of others, of those around us, because we, we so desperately yearn to hear it. But our hearts are created to hear it from him. And when our hearts don't feel like they're hearing it from God, we go to the next best thing. We go to image bearers of God. But what this is saying is that we will receive what we truly desire deep down. We will receive praise, glory and honour from him. Now what we've just spoken about is really the restoration of our characters. There will obviously be physical restoration, which I wasn't going into, but suffice to say the disabilities, the aches, the pains, the limps will all be healed and six packs will be revealed in those that trust him. That's not a quote, by the way. That's more of a, more of a blind hope, I suspect. Um, so we're going to go back to the story of Shawshank Redemption now. And this time we're going to look at the main character, Andy. Because Andy is different from all the other prisoners. As, as Red, played by Morgan Freeman, said, he has a walk and talk that's not normal for round here. Because what made Andy different is that Andy knew he was innocent. He knew the sinner, the prisoner, wasn't the deepest thing about him, and he had hope. Now, when we talk about hope in, in a kind of biblical context, we're not talking about some wishy-washy expectation of something that may happen. So it's not, it's not to say, oh, I hope I have a nice holiday. In a biblical context, when we talk about hope, it is a, it is a deep conviction in your soul that something will come to pass. Andy had the hope of knowing that the prisoner wasn't who he really was. He had, he had a sense of what his true identity was. And he had the hope of knowing that one day he would be set free. That one day he would be set free from captivity and redeemed. Now, as you probably guess what I'm about to say, it is no coincidence that this is a great story because it is our story. That is very much the story of, of us and faith in Jesus because through Jesus, we are pronounced innocent. We have a true identity. And he came with the offer of freedom. In Galatians 5.10, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And when Jesus quoted Isaiah at the start of his ministry, he said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. The world may tell us that we're something else, but we know in Jesus that we are innocent. And we have the hope of freedom in Christ now and the hope of complete freedom to come when his kingdom comes fully. 
And it was the hope that Andy had that made the difference for him. It was the hope that he had in his innocence and in his freedom yet to come that enabled him to suffer the to, to endure the suffering of being in prison. And it was that that uh, strength that he had that enabled him to love others well. And um, that verse I read from Colossians 1.5 just a moment ago, I'll just repeat a little bit from it. It says, the faith that faith and love spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Faith and love come from the hope. Hope comes first. If there's no hope, then there is no faith and love. There are a lot of really good sections in this film which show how Andy fights for the hearts of others. He loves others well. Now, this is, this is my favourite. It's, uh, I think it's such a great clip because it, it shows how the hope that Andy had gave him strength and it gave him the strength to, to love others, to fight for the hearts of others well, which again is, is such a great picture of Jesus. In, in Hebrews, it says of, of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, Jesus knew the mission he was on to fight for our freedom and that was the hope that in part gave him the strength to endure great suffering. Red in the film, on the other hand, played by Morgan Freeman. Well, he can't handle the the, the hope, un, the yearning of hope unfulfilled. He, he can't he can't bring himself to hope. He's given up. He's checked out. He's taken the easy option. And as he says to Andy, hope is a dangerous thing, which is perhaps true. But without it, we're dead. And Andy, as you saw in that clip, says you have to protect what's within. And when asked what that is, he says, hope. It is so true. We have to protect what is within, which in part is what it means to pray, thy kingdom come. It is to say, Lord, Father, restore that hope in me. Remind me of what is yet to come. Restore that truth of your kingdom yet to come in my heart. And we need to do those things that stir up that hope in us, like listening to beautiful music like Mozart, all good things come from God. Mozart is a taste of what is yet to come. So when we hear things like that and they rouse hope in us, we remind ourselves that that is a taste of his kingdom yet to come. So what else? What else should, be, should we look forward to in heaven when his kingdom comes fully? Well, there will also be community, perfect community. And I, I can't, wait to see what it's like to live in community with glorious human beings who all love each other for who they are. Because I think we can all appreciate that we are designed, created to live in community, to love each other, support each other, challenge other, each other. But alas, the realities of that today are somewhat different because we are all so broken. It can be a rare occurrence that our true self makes an appearance and, and we spend most of our time bumping into each other's false self, being wounded by the words of those closest to us, by getting frustrated by those that we're expecting to love us well. Because because we are so broken, we, we're always searching for that praise and the validation of others because we don't have the certainty of who we really are, of our true identity. But in his kingdom, we will know who we truly are. We will be our true selves at last. So when, if someone were to correct us or challenge us or suggest something different, we'd take it for what it is. 
and not take it as a challenge on our identities. And we won't need the approval of others. It won't matter what others think because we will know who we truly are. They will know who they truly are. We will be free to enjoy each other's company. And when he returns on that day, there will be a feast to end all feasts. You may recall that the first, the first miracle that Jesus performed was at the wedding feast of Cana. And the scriptures refer to this, this miracle as a sign because it had significance beyond just the miracle itself. And the significance was because it was the first sign through which Jesus revealed who he is. Now, on the surface, it seems a bit of an odd first miracle. No one has died. There's no demons to cast out. There's no major disaster. All that's happened is they've run out of wine. So why does Jesus intervene and intervene so extravagantly by producing gallons of the finest wine late into the evening? Well, the reason is because everything he did was dripping with symbolism. Because when Jesus was introduced to the master of ceremonies, he takes control. And in doing so, he is saying, I am the master of ceremonies. I am the Lord of the feast. Everything I am here to do, to suffer, to die for you, is for a reason. And that reason is festival joy. I am here to bring restoration to the new heaven and the new earth. And it will culminate in an eternal feast at the end of time. Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That is telling us what, is going, what will happen when his kingdom comes fully. And it will be a wedding feast because we will be reunited with Christ as his bride. The best of meats and the finest of wines. And we shouldn't have in mind some, some traditional wedding because in ancient times, weddings were often week-long affairs involving the whole community because weddings were seen as a vital part of the well-being of the community as a whole. And there will be laughter, the sort of laughter that makes your cheeks hurt and tears roll down your face. And there will be music, the sort of music that hits you in the chest and makes you want to get to your feet and dance. But actually, I think we probably will dance. I don't think we'll be stood at the side clutching our beers because we will be free. We will be free to dance like we've never danced before. I, um, I went to uh, a concert at the O2 in, in July. It was a Lionel Richie concert, which, um, which was incredible. And I thoroughly recommend it. The man is a legend. Um, but towards the end, he was doing an encore. And um, I was shuffling my wife out towards the exit because I didn't want to be at the back of 25,000 people leaving the O2. So we were shuffling out towards the exit. And we were waiting by, by one of the exits. And uh, I glanced to my left and there was this guy, I think he was probably in his 50s, but man, he was dancing. Every single muscle and sinew was, was in constant movement and the joy on his face was incredible. And I was stood there kind of with the odd kind of, you know, hip, hip flex, 
but he was just going for it and I couldn't help but think that is what it's going to be like that will that was how we will all dance in heaven and that feast and party will be like returning home after a long and arduous journey a journey of a lifetime in fact and there will be a seat reserved for you by the king of kings and he will be there to raise a glass in your name and this is a quote from Mark 14:25 Jesus says I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that joy will be indescribable. And as the phrase goes, it will make the most miserable of lives feel like one bad night in a hotel. It will be joy unspeakable, as the New King James Version says. But unspeakably great as our restoration, as our freedom, as a perfect community and of a mother of all parties will be, there is yet more. In Revelation 21, it describes what will happen when his kingdom comes fully as the city of God coming down to earth and making all things new. And I think it's a really important piece of scripture because it describes that all things will be made new, not just us, but creation which means that the creation that we see today is a foretaste of something yet to come. It's an appetizer of something yet more satisfying. And as glorious as creation can be, we're yet to see it in its full glory. It's like the bud of a flower that is yet to fully unfold. In the, um, in the Narnia books, which I've mentioned in the past, um, the last of those Narnia books, there's seven books, the last one's called The Last Battle, And in that book, C.S. Lewis gives the most wonderful description of what it will be like when his kingdom comes. He talks about our restoration and the restoration of of the earth. And he, he describes beautifully how the reason why we get so much pleasure out of creation, out of the earth, is because it looks a little bit like heaven and it is reminding us of what is yet to come. And my favorite quote from that book is there is a in the in the story there is a unicorn called Jewel, and when Jewel goes in to the new Narnia, which is the new earth, i.e. the kingdom restored, he says this: "I've come home at last." I'm getting emotional about a unicorn quote now. Gosh, man, <laughs> this is <laughs> I've come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looks a little like this. The reason why we love creation is because it looks a little like heaven. It's stirring that yearning up for us, for a land that we desire to go to, but yet we haven't yet got to. There's, um, there's a popular secular belief that, that creation is just a simple accident, mere serendipity, that the world in which we inhabit is just a random collision of atoms. And whilst I guess that is theoretically possible, it makes me want to respond with a question. And that is, if that were true, if if the Earth, this creation, is a random act of science with no rhyme or reason, then why does it affect us? Why does it stir something in us? Why is it when we see a butterfly on a flower gently unfolding its wings? Do we just want to stop and watch? Why is it when we smell freshly cut grass or the essence of spring, do we just want to inhale deeply? Why is it when we see clear turquoise waters on a sunny beach, do we want to dive in? 
Why is it when we see a you know, mountain with snow on the top, do we just stand in awe? Why? Because God is speaking to us through the beauty of the earth right now. He is reminding us of the hope stored up for us in heaven when his kingdom will come fully. There's a Chesterton quote where he says, um, the worst moment for an atheist is when he's thankful for something, but he has no one to thank. And I think creation, we should, we should be grateful for, for the joy of what it is today. But more than that, we should be grateful for what it is telling us, what it is telling us of our hope stored up for us in heaven. Last year, um, my wife celebrated her 40th and as a special treat, I organised a, a weekend away in the Amalfi Coast. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Um, it was always somewhere I wanted to go because um, I knew it to be a beautiful place. And um, so I arranged this trip. And on the, on the week of the trip, uh, I had a horribly busy week at work. It was really it was a stressful week. wasn't sleeping very well. Uh, and we had to get up incredibly early on the Friday to get to Gatwick Airport, thundering down the, uh, the motorway to get to Gatwick. Gatwick was rammed because it was a bank holiday Monday. And then we flew to, um, we flew to uh, uh, Naples, got to Naples. That was horribly busy. And then you have to get a car out to the Amalfi Coast. And um, to get to the coast from Naples, you go up over the mountains and down the other side to the, to the coast. And as we went up into the mountains, it was, it was cloudy, it was cold, the mist had come down, very low visibility. But then we started to come down the other side of the mountains towards where we were staying, and it just started to warm up, and the clouds started to lift, and then phew, the cloud had gone, and the sun was beaming through, and you could see the, the sea. And then we arrived at where we were staying, which was this, it was a beautifully restored 17th century monastery, and we... we we approached it from the back of the monastery. And uh, when we arrived, it was just a wonderfully warm welcome. Everyone was beautiful and happy and nice to us. And um, when we went into the monastery, they rang this bell as if to say, you've arrived. And then they gave us, they just took our luggage off us and said, don't, don't worry, it's fine, we'll check you in later. And they gave us this um, glass of water, chilled with lemon and mint, sending it from the gardens. And then they took us out onto this balcony, um, which was at the front of the monastery. And all of a sudden, we were presented with this view. And it was incredible. The, the gardens were uh, just stunning. They were full of lemon trees and olive trees and herbs and, and spring flowers, beautifully cared for. And then the cliff just fell away. And there was the sea with the sun shining on it. And it was such a magnificent, oh, man. And I mean, that is literally what happened to me. I couldn't, I couldn't take it in. It was too much and I had to turn away because my heart was, was overflowing with the beauty of it and, and what it was telling me about the hope stored up for me in heaven. And it was too much and I had to turn away because I thought, I can't, I don't know how to explain this to the, uh, the beautiful people that had greeted us, why I was getting emotional. Um, now, I, I think there is something particularly beautiful in spring, which I've spoken about before. But actually, I think there is something special in all of the seasons, and in, and in particular, the passing of the seasons. Because as, as humans, we can be really quite 
odd about change and seemingly dissatisfied with the amount of change in our lives. Because on the one hand, we like a bit of familiarity, a bit of certainty. We, like, we, we want to know what's going to happen, so we create these habits and these routines. But on the other hand, we are far too easily bored and we get frustrated with the monotony of life. We get frustrated with the routines and habits which we feel we are tied to. But in the passing of the seasons, you get this wonderful balance of change and certainty. The seasons come and go every few months, providing us with something fresh and new, but not in a way that's disruptive, rather than the opposite, in fact. We take comfort from knowing the colder months are going to be replaced by the warmer air of spring. But we don't get bored of it, because every year it just feels so fresh and new. And there's also a wonderful story being told through the passing of the seasons. It's a wonderful story because it's the story of mankind. It's our story. If we go to the part of the Bible where Adam and Eve are in Eden, everything's as it should be there. They're in the presence of God. They're walking with God. There is abundant life. There is no fear, no shame. Sin has not entered the garden. That was perfection. That was summertime. But then evil entered the garden. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, and they did. And they were cast out of the garden, out of the presence of God, and they felt fear and shame. Sin had come into their hearts. It would take hold. It would spread throughout their hearts and throughout the hearts of generations to come. Everything would start to decay and die. That time is autumn, or perhaps, as they say more appropriately in the US, the fall. And then what follows that is a time where there's little life and little grow and little 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 grows. It is a dark period, and as Shakespeare put it, it is the winter of our discontent. Sin has become a reality, human brokenness has become a reality. Satan has become the prince of the world, and the whole earth lies under the power of the evil one. And it's much of the story of the Old Testament people wandering in the wilderness, falling into sin time after time. That time is winter. But what follows winter is spring. Jesus has come down to earth with the promise of life. The presence of God has come down to earth. Jesus has come to take back everything that was lost to the evil one. And where Jesus walks, there is life. There is restoration. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are brought back to life. Every year, spring is giving us a reflection of the restoration that comes through the presence of God. And spring is where we are right now. Jesus has come with the offer of life and restoration and the promise of what is yet to come, a time when he will make all things new, when everything will be returned to as it should be, when everything will flourish, where there will be abundant life. He is telling us that summer will come again once more. So creation is telling us a story. It's reminding us each year of where we've been and where we're going. And if we allow it to, it will stir up that longing for us, that hope that we have in what is stored up for us in heaven, summertime. So coming to a close, and we are going to finish with a final clip from Shawshank Redemption. And then we're going to go out for a discipline of silence for 30 minutes and then we're going to come back in here and we're going to worship. Um, so I will, I'm not going to pray actually after, after the clip. So the clip will end 
and I just want you to, to go out and spend 30 minutes with God. And what I'd like you to do is, if you can, just try and spend the time allowing that hope to take hold. Spend a bit of time thinking about what, what will it be like for you personally? What will his kingdom restored look like for you? What, do you, what is it you will be free from? What is it you're looking forward to? There are some questions in the back of the, the book that you can use, but more than anything else, I just love you to spend some time thinking and praying about what that time will be like. At the end of the, um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Samwise Gamgee wakes up after being rescued from the fires of Mount Doom and he sees Gandalf stood at the end of his bed and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Has everything sad come untrue? And that will be what we will experience in heaven when his kingdom comes fully. Everything sad will come untrue. We will be set free from all of our troubles and everything that is not the real us. We will be immersed in a creation on the day just as it was the day it was first made. There will be a feast to end all feasts with the best of meats and the finest of wines. There will be perfect community and there will be Jesus there as the host. Ask the Father to allow that hope for his kingdom come to to take root in your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to allow that to be a deep conviction, not a wishy-washy view of what may happen, but a conviction deep in the very core of who you are. Psalm 37 verse 34 says, put your hope in the Lord, travel steadily along his path, he will honour you by giving you the land. Now this last clip we're going to see is, is actually a very subtle picture of heaven. Andy has escaped and uh, Red has been released on parole. And you'll notice with Red, do you remember before that he, he couldn't hope? He just didn't have the courage to hope. Well, that, that hope has, that, that Andy had has now spread to Red. And, and Andy, before he escaped, he told Red to go to, when, he, when Red was released, he told him, go to this field where you'll find a big oak tree. And under that oak tree, you'll find an alabaster rock, which has no earthly reason to be there. And as Red follows Andy, you notice the excitement of a free man take hold, the adventure of a free man. And that is another picture of heaven. There will be adventure in heaven. We're not just going to be sat on clouds. We will be ruling as good kings. That comes with risk and adventure. That's what we are created for. And the final scene of this, of this clip is one of simple but profound beauty. The setting is beautiful. And there is Andy, and he's working away. He's doing his perfect job. He's ruling as a good king. That is what he was destined to do. And then there is friendship, community, and laughter. Because laughter will abound in heaven. As C.S. Lewis put it, joy is the serious business of heaven. Everything that is beautiful, that is precious, exciting, and loving in this world is of God. And although we're in a time where there is, there's grim stuff, there's pain, there's suffering, there's illness, but there will come a time when everything sad will come untrue. And then we will be left with beauty, friendship and joy, joy unspeakable. Let that be your hope. As it says in the film, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things.